Love that. Now, uh, can you do one on Ezekiel? This is going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing when you do one on Ezekiel. Can't wait for that. Yeah. All right. Hey, so good to be with you tonight. I'm looking forward to our time together. Uh, I'm going to read actually a, a passage of scripture before we begin. We didn't, we didn't coordinate this uh, as well as we should have, but God coordinated quite well. We've been singing about the fruit of the Spirit. Would you listen as I read from John chapter 14, which will kind of govern our theme uh, this evening regarding fruit, and then I'll pray, and then we'll uh, look together at Ezekiel. Oh, excuse me, John chapter 15. Here's what Jesus says. I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it that it might bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you, but abide in me, <clears throat> and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, uh, great privilege to gather here uh, this evening within these walls, listening for your voice, trusting, asking, praying that your Holy Spirit would teach us, Father. We're mindful that we're here at Mount Hermon, just for a few days, desiring to hear from you and respond in order that we might be shaped to be people scattered across the globe uh, to bring light into darkness, hope into despair, generosity and courage into a world filled with fear and greed. So would you anoint these words this evening and prepare our hearts to receive and respond? We pray this in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. Well, I live in Seattle, as many of you know. Seattle has uh, never been famous for being conservative, right? If you know anything about uh, Seattle politics, uh, you know a pretty liberal city. One of the things uh, about Seattle when it comes to sexual morality is uh, the, the prevailing conversation right now in 2019 is about the death of monogamy. We, I hear this a lot as a pastor in Seattle. Monogamy's dying, monogamy's dead. And if you were to kind of do a study of contemporary culture, you'd see that monogamy is being, at the very least, challenged. Meg Baker wrote a book entitled Rewriting the Rules, a quote from that book. This is what she says. Monogamy can't bear the weight of its own promises. It's destined to collapse. Chris Ryan wrote a, very, a book very popular in Seattle entitled Sex at Dawn, the fundamental premise of which is we're just an inch away on DNA from Bonobo chimps, and we're not called to monogamy, we're called to polyamory. And he says famously, you didn't fa fail monogamy, monogamy failed you. Another book, and a new book out titled The Polyamorist Next Door, Inside Multiple Partner Relationships and Families. And then my favorite quote as I was trying to understand what's going on in my own city is a quote from Laura Kipnis in her article Against Love. And this is like, it's a super depressing article. Here's her conclusion. Screw everyone and anyone, anytime you want, wherever necessary. Just don't look for love. It doesn't exist. Now, how depressing is that? So kind of, kind of that's the culture we live in. One sociologist has kind of tracked the rise of polyamory and the uh, attendant decline of monogamy, and he's noticed that the decline of monogamy has uh, paralleled the decline in uh, church attendance in America. So as church attendance goes down, so does our culture's collective commitment to monogamous relationships. Now, let me, this is not a marriage seminar tonight, uh, so I'm just gonna cut to the chase and show you why this matters. 
marriage in the Bible is a picture of discipleship. I mean, big time. Marriage is a picture of discipleship. Uh, and therefore, our view of marriage affects our spiritual life. And, and so there's a marriage picture here that we'll see in just a moment uh, that explains why Israel is being judged. So what we're going to do this evening is look at kind of these three elements around this uh, theme of fruitfulness. So we go to the next slide. We kind of see these three elements that invite intimacy. We're made for intimacy, and marriage is about intimacy. So we see a vision and a departure from the vision and a promise of restoration. So that's kind of those things we're going to look at uh, here this evening. God had a vision that we'd be intimate. Now, the vision in Ezekiel 15 and 16, those are two chapters here this evening, 15 and 16. I'm like, we're going to read them, but here's, there's two metaphors that Ezekiel poetically says, hey, Israel's asking the question, why'd the glory depart? I mean, what's the problem? Come on, we're still in the temple, we're still singing songs, we still have a priesthood, uh, we still do all the outward religious forms, tell what's up, what's wrong? <clears throat> and then, um, Ezekiel, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, well, he, he, like here's, here's the, the vision that God has, and you've departed from it, and here's the vision. The vision is fruit born from intimacy. That's, what, that's the life for which we're created. We just sang that song, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all that good stuff. Born, that, that comes through us as a result of intimacy. So in Ezekiel 15, here's what Ezekiel says. He says, you guys are like a, a, a vine that isn't bearing fruit. You're like a vine that isn't bearing fruit. And then the point in Ezekiel 15 is this. Uh, who in the uh, room has ever worked with grapes? I've worked with grapes because I grew up in Fresno, and so Fresno's Kingsburg, and Kingsburg is raisins, and raisins are, go pick the grapes in August when it's 110, and put them on foil things when you're eight years old, because your grandfather's a raisin, raisin farmer, and then watch them dry, right? So, but the point is, like, uh, if there's no grape, there's no raisin. Or if you're in the wine, if there's no grape, there's no wine. And then all you have is the wood of the vine. And Ezekiel 15, I'll just tell you, I'll cut to the chase, here's the punchline. Here's Ezekiel 15. What is vine wood good for? And here's the answer, nothing. You don't build with it. You don't make chairs with it. Like you, the only thing it's good for, it's not even really good for that, is you throw in a fire. That's all it's good for. So if, like the point, if you're a vine, if you're a vine, you don't exist because someday you're going to be a beam at Mount Hermon. Like, if you're a vine, you don't exist because someday you're going to be a frame around a great piece of art. If you're a vine, like, if you're a vine, you have one purpose only, and that's to bear fruit. That's it. And God's complaint, Ezekiel 15, Israel, you're not bearing fruit anymore. So that's a problem, right? <clears throat> and then at 16, there's this graphic, poetic imagery offered uh, of Israel as a, as a woman Blessed by a man who enters into a covenant marriage with her. And we're not going to read it. It's really graphic. If you want to read it sometime on your own, go ahead. It's, it's good. It's crazy. But I'll, just, I'll give you a kind of a weird picture. God says, Israel, you know, when I met you, you were a baby. You'd been tossed away by your mom, and you were left in a field to die. Now, as somebody who's adopted, I find a significance of this you know, word picture, right? Like your mom didn't want you. You're out there in the field. You're left to die. You're squirming in your own blood. And I, God, said to you, nation of Israel, I said, live. And I brought you to myself and I fed you and I bathed you and I clothed you. And, I, and then you grew up and you became beautiful. 
and I bought you the finest clothing, and I gave you a great earring and a great nose ring and great perfume and all that stuff, and then when you were beautiful and the time came for you for marriage, I entered into a covenant with you, and then it says, but rather than living in covenant fidelity with me, you, now you took the beauty that I've given you, and think about our own lives. How much has God blessed you? Blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. And then this is God's complaint. You took the blessings and you went out and you spent those blessings to seduce other lovers, right? And so God's complaint, Israel, you're unfaithful. And if you're unfaithful, as we'll see, you're not gonna be able to bear the right kind of fruit. So that's, those are the two word pictures that are trying to explain to Israel why they gotta wake up. I know you're still religious, but you're unfaithful. Now, let's unpack this. So the, the big picture here <clears throat> with both the vine and the marriage metaphor is we're invited, all of us in the room are invited to intimate fidelity with God, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole intention. We're intended to be in a love relationship. It's always been God's vision that we're in a covenant relationship. And in any covenant relationship, you who are married in the room know this. If you're in a covenant relationship, there's, there's giving and receiving of love. It's this dance that goes on where uh, who in the room, if you're married, knows this? Like, sometimes you're on the top of the world and you have to help your wife because she's down in the dumps. Other times, she's up, you're down. Who has had this experience in the room? I, everybody who's married has had this experience at various times, right? That's the way a good, healthy marriage works. And so it doesn't matter, you know, maybe she works outside the, outside the home or he does or they both do or whatever. And so they have vocation and they have home stuff and they have, often they have kids and they're, and then they have soccer and violin and cello and dance and theater and sport and, you know, and they're, it's busy and it's hard and it's life-giving and there's train day and you're sunburned. That's <laughs> called marriage, right? So, so uh, you, there's giving and receiving. He gives, she receives. She gives, he receives. That's the way it works. All undeniably true, all good. And yet, this is also true. The clearest revelation of giving and receiving in a marriage, the clearest revelation comes, what? In the production of children, right? Because um, it's not only is this not a marriage talk, this isn't a sex talk, but here we go just for a second here, right? <laughs> for children to come into existence, we all know it, he has to share his seed with her. That's what he has to do. Without his seed, there's no baby. So... Um, uh, Tim Keller calls this radical self-donation. He's a pastor in New York. He says, when, you, when you're in marriage covenant, uh, he, when he shares a seed, that's a, he's sharing the essence of who he is with her. So he's giving him everything that he is, but it's also true, this giving results in nothing unless the woman is going to receive what he's offering, right? So he must give it, she must receive it when he gives it, and she receives it, and everything is right. Lo and behold, children. That's totally the way it works. Now, I get it. There are, ex there are exceptions. Don't even worry about it, right, this evening. Don't worry about in vitro stuff and, and sexual abuse. All, all true, but don't miss the point. Because here's the point. In God's ideal, she's receiving nothing less than his life and then it's the union of his life and her, her life that is bearing the fruit that we were just singing about just a minute ago, right? So, this is a picture, I don't know if you knew this in the Bible, but you probably do, this is a picture of our life in Christ, right? Because what does it say in Ephesians 5? It says, hey, hus husbands, 
Love your wife as what? Christ loved the church. And then what we're told in Ephesians 5, Jesus is literally in Ephesians 5, called the groom, the husband, who lays down his life for the bride. And by the way, the bride is who? The church. And who's the church? That's us. So we're the bride, Christ the groom. Christ lays down his life for uh, the, the, the bride. But more than that, this isn't just some nice poetic metaphor. This is reality. We are literally the bride of Christ. Someday uh, when all things are new, when this thing goes up and you see that scripture, when all things are new, right? The, part of the newness is a marriage festival. And we're all men and women. <clears throat> we're the bride. So what is, why is that offered to us? Because... What God wants for everyone in the room is that we develop, as we grow, this kind of 24-7 posture, ongoing, we're receiving life from Christ by virtue of pure intimacy with Jesus, right? And as I'm receiving life from Christ, the, the promise is, having been filled with the seed of Christ's life, I will bear fruit. That's John 14. Abide in me. And then not abide in me and have a great program or abide in me and work hard or abide in me and make a good goal sheet or abide in me and have the right app for your habits. No, no, listen, abide in me, whatever that means, and we'll talk about it, but abide in me. And if you abide in me, here's the promise, you will bear fruit, boom. Like it's a law. So this is really pretty liberating. Let me make some observations here real quickly. First of all, then it's true in the room, if you're, either you're single you're married. Everybody in the room is married. We're all married, right? So many of us have a human marriage. But uh, if you have a human marriage, don't let your human marriage ever become your only marriage. It can become an idol, right? So don't let your human marriage become your only marriage because the truth is we're married for eternity and we're the bride of Christ. But then if you're single, 1 Corinthians 7 says, and if you're single, then you don't have this kind of like dual uh, problem going on of dual loyalties, right? Like if you're single and God calls you to Austria to go speak and ski, you go. <laughs> That's just the way it is. You, know, I mean, you pray, but you go. You just go. Once you're married, when God calls you to ski, I mean preach and ski, <laughs> when God calls you to preach and ski, then okay, God's calling me, but now listen, I'm not a free agent anymore. And so now I go, hey, uh, Donna, you know, I have an opportunity, you know, it's, it's time to go to Austria, a uh, little bit of, you know, preaching, a little bit of skiing. And then she's like this, yeah, and let's look at the calendar. And what about the kids' birthdays? And what about this? And what about that? And, you know, do you have that ladder shined? And, you know, when it's all, when it's all lined up, like, wow, okay, now I have another thing to consider. Paul is saying that. So listen, if you're single in the room, I just have a good word for you, man. Enjoy it. And like, <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I've been married 40 years. I love my marriage. Don't mishear me in any way. But like, leverage that time. It's a great time. It's not a time of waiting. Get over that. Like, it's a time of living, right? You gotta, you're living now. This is what God has given you. Whatever God has given you, put your hand to it. Enjoy it. So that's the first thing. Second thing, though, now, we're still talking about this fruit principle. If we're going to bear fruit, then we need this posture, this continual posture of receiving. So being a posture of receiving from Christ is literally the only way we bear fruit. It's the only, it's the only way because I'm the bride. And the bride can't bear fruit without the seed that comes from who? The groom. And who's the groom? The groom's Christ. 
So that is why uh, Jesus said it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't mean you can't get a job at Facebook. You can. You, you, look, look, you can work. You can put food on the table. No problem. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Galatians 5, what we just sang. Like, apart from me, the love and joy, the capacity to love enemies, the capacity to cross social divides, the capacity to live generously, the capacity to make eye contact, the capacity to be freed from your hidden addictions, that capacity is inaccessible to you without the regenerating work of Christ's life. That's the seed that you must receive not once, but over and over again, because abide is a present active exhortation in John 15. It's not like you did it once when you signed a card when you were 10. No, no, I'm continually receiving the seed of Christ. That's why all of us in the room need habits of showing up to receive from God. Uh, Bible reading, solitude, uh, creation. Maybe for you it's journaling as well. If you're a young mom, it might be right in the midst of everything, in the, you know, diapers and dishes and all that stuff, and the, and the spiritual discipline of service. Whatever it is, understand that my prayer for you is that you develop a posture of consciously being in communion with Jesus. Because to the extent that I'm really receiving from Jesus in kind of this existential real way, not kind of devotions and go, but Christ always with me, right? Christ with me in the car when I'm, when I'm driving. This is huge because this begins to transform us. We begin to bear fruit only to the extent that we're receiving continually uh, from Christ. So we're gonna learn to, to, develop, to develop these habits. Uh, uh, I have a bit of a commute as part of my world. And you guys don't know Seattle, but in the last 10 years, Amazon moved in. And it's terrible. Uh, on the traffic side, it's terrible. There may be benefits of some sort, I don't know. But um, <laughs> on the traffic side, it's terrible. So now there's this road, and it used to be the case that you could beat the traffic. You'd say, oh, when will I drive? I know, like 2.30 in the afternoon. That's... Well after the morning commute, it's super, before people are supposed to get off work, I thought people quit at 5. I'm going to get on the road at 2.30, boom, parked, right? And like, I have a watch that gauges my pulse. And so for, you know, months, like I'd get on the freeway and i go, I, what happened to my city? Who stole my city? I hate, this is, this is terrible. When will these people live? Can somebody please bust up Amazon in an antitrust suit and get them out of here? And, and by the way, take, uh, you know, Expedia with you and Boeing. And I just want fishermen and loggers. Come on. And, you know, and paper, not a phone. And, man, and it, so I'm mad. And then I look at my pulse and it's like, I'm just driving a car. It's 118 or something like that. And I go, this is ridiculous. This has to stop. This is not the fruit of the Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is not the fruit of the Spirit. So something happened a little while ago. I began to pray. Jesus, I want to develop habits of receiving you 24-7. So how can I receive you when I'm on Interstate 5, heading south, and it's, we're, I'm going three miles an hour? How can I receive you? <laughs> and, I've, and I'm learning. And I'll tell you exactly how now. I'm on there, and I look around, and I go, thank you, God. I, I get to live in this city. This is a beautiful city. Thank you. What a privilege to live here. What a privilege that all these people who are polluting this road are here in this city and have an opportunity to encounter Christ at the church that I'm privileged to lead. That's incredible. And I begin to pray for people who are in cars next to me. 
And, and then my pulse is suddenly 75. Do you understand what I'm saying? Look, we're called to bear fruit, but we don't create fruit. We just receive. That's it. So if we're obsessed with receiving, this is beautiful. If we're, if we're obsessed with, with receiving, we'll rest in knowing fruit will happen. Yeah. Right? Abiding, you'll bear much fruit. And we don't have to worry about the fruit. How big it is, when it happens, just be intent on receiving. Develop habits. Open your Bible every day. You know, let God speak to you. Uh, pay attention to creation. Pray for people in a traffic jam. Pray for your children. Pray for your friends. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your spouse. Listen to what God is saying. Give thanks. There's a friend of mine, great takeaway. Uh, he, he said one time at a little staff meeting at one of the Bible schools where I teach, uh, he said, and it was just a throwaway comment for him, the nature of Christ's life is reproductive. So if we're abiding in Christ, we should expect fruit. That changed my life. I was like this. Oh, you know what? Um, my responsibility, the active verb there is abide. That's what I have to do. I don't produce fruit. I'm not called to have a performance religion. I'm not called to make an impact. I'm not called to have a perfect doctrinal statement. I'm not called to even have a perfect life. I'm called to abide. And if I abide, then there will be fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, Micah 6.8, justice, mercy. That stuff happens as a result of receiving. So that's it. Walk with God and good things will happen. Why? You'll be receiving the seed from the life force of the universe and you will then give birth to beauty and hope and justice and reconciling power and generosity and peace and, and justice. Wow. What could possibly go wrong? Well, point two, right? So here's the deal. Um, this, that was God's desire. But instead, uh, it's apparent that we have this capacity to break the covenant relationship with Jesus. So Ezekiel uh, 16 is this powerful, you know, poetry language. God enters into a covenant relationship, a marriage relationship with God's people. And if you go back and look at the beginning of the nation of Israel, that's why in Exodus 19, what did God say? I mean, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? What did God say? Listen, I'm the Lord your God. You shall what? Have no other gods before me. Now, why does God say that? God's not some, you know, petty, jealous spouse. Like, God says that because God's desire is that we would live in a faithful covenant relationship with God because when we're in a faithful covenant relationship with God, we're receiving all that he is. And when I receive all that he is, then his life is displayed in my daily living. At, at baseball, in the classroom, in the hospital, in the bedroom, in the boardroom, wherever you are, it's Christ. Man, all I have to do is receive. But I have to receive. And that requires from me a response to God's fidelity of my fidelity. That's the, that's the thing. So when God uses covenant language, God is calling us to covenant fidelity. And of course... Uh, over and over, all through the Bible, this is the basic call of faith. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6? You show what? Love the Lord your God with 80% of your heart and then 20% goes to baseball. No, 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 no. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Like, do baseball, but do baseball only to the extent that it flows out of love for God. 
Do music, do Amazon, do Facebook, do upward mobility, do hospitality, but only if it is the fruit of loving God with all your heart and soul and all your strength. Like, pour yourself into one thing, that's it. So that's, that's the, 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 the call. Now, let me make some observations here about this covenant thing. The first observation is this. It's clear through this scripture and many others, God will always be faithful. God's always going to be faithful. That's just the way it's going to be. Habakkuk chapter 2 says this, the just shall live, it, we often interpret it this way, by faith, you could say that, but equally legitimate as a translation, the just shall live by God's faithfulness. Now, why is that significant? Well, what did Jesus say? Do you remember? I will never leave you or forsake you. What did Paul say about Jesus? Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. Like, I, I, isn't it great to know that my, if I'm unfaithful to my spouse, my spouse will never be unfaithful to me. Isn't that awesome? That's, I mean, that's this text. So have I been unfaithful? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I bank on with 100% confidence the faithfulness and fidelity of God. God will always be, there's a whole, a whole prophet, Hosea, was all about this, right? Hosea marries a gal who's out sleeping around, and he always brings her home, always brings her home. That's God. So listen, if you're here tonight, and it's like, the, the issue is shame, I've, I've failed once too often. I've gone once too far. I'm not worthy. Whatever. It's never been about your worthiness, it's always, look, God is faithful in this already. That's the way it's going to be. We'll see this at the end. Second observation, though, while loving God faithfully is the one true thing that is asked of us, just like in a marriage, right? This is all of the thing that most easily and quickly disappears from the life of faith. And, and here's what's so tricky. It can disappear, as we saw last night, and we can still look incredibly religious even as it's disappeared. Uh, remember Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where uh, Jesus is speaking to a particular church, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is essentially what Jesus is saying. You guys are very incredibly religious by most standards. I mean, when people would look at this particular church, this is what they say. And now I'm not, I'm quoting the Bible now. Here's Jesus. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. <clears throat> I know you don't tolerate wicked people. You've tested them who claim to be apostles and are not. You found them to be false. You've patiently suffered for me. You haven't quit on me. It sounds great, right? Like doctorally astute, faithful, enduring, hardworking, good music, you know, it's all there. And then what does he say? But I, here's a one problem. You have left your first love. You're outwardly performing, but you're not, not really being fruitful because your heart has drifted away. Man, I'll tell you what, as a, as a pastor who sometimes does marriage stuff, I, I am most worried when uh, a couple is sitting here and if I suggest particular things to do that might help the marriage, one party or the other, often the husband, but could be anybody, uh, one party or the other, uh, th their response is like, like an engineer. Oh, oh, I see. Ah, I'm supposed to ask her how her day is. Okay, and he's writing it down, you know. Oh, uh, 10 minutes of eye contact. Okay, he's writing it down, you know. And, and you know, words of affirmation. Okay, he's writing it down. And then they come back and nothing's changed. And you're like, well, how, why? And she's like this. He still doesn't love me. And he's like this. Of course I do. And she goes, no, you don't. 
And then he, this is what he does. He pulls out the engineer's notebook. And he goes, I've done all these things, right? Eye contact. <laughs> Ten minutes. Words of affirmation. Love your hair. You know, whatever else is needed. I've done them. And then she, what does she say? You know what she says. She says, look, I don't care about any of that. I want your heart. Do you understand? That's, that's what's at stake here. Because we approach God the same way as that engineer, often. Like, we have a checklist. Oh, yeah, we did a quiet time. We did a Sunday thing. You know, we had to serve on some kind of a committee somewhere. We had to give somewhere. We had to be socially active somehow. Check, 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 check. Wrong attitude. So we've got to clear the decks of that because I can do all the right things and still have something going on the side. Do you understand what I'm saying? So uh, the presenting evidence that Israel has something going on on the side, even though they still have the temple, still have the priesthood, still have the singing, here's God's complaint. It's Ezekiel 16, 49, right? Presenting problem for the nation of Israel. This is what he says. In this, this is in this marriage metaphors that heats up. He says, you guys are worse, your, your sins are worse than uh, 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 your sister Sodom, right? Sodom and her daughters are not done as wickedly as you. Now, it's very, really interesting. When we think about, like if we did a little word association game here, and we said Sodom and Gomorrah, you'd think of probably some kind of sexual sin. But now, listen to this. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not help the poor and needy. What are sins of Sodom? What is this? Pride. Greatest nation on earth. Excess of food. In America, that amounts to 30% of the calories that are thrown away every day. Prosperities is a euphemism for more free time than you know what to do with. So we watch, we binge watch, whatever. Game of chairs or whatever the name of it is. <laughs> Great station on earth, tons of free time, excess food, and nobody's caring for the poor and needy. And that's the evidence that you don't love me. That the covenant's been broken. That's the evidence. So what God's saying here is he's, he's trying to show them the symptoms of their loss of love. And he's, this is what he's saying. He's trying to, trying to wake up, right? And then, I'll just make this last observation here before moving on to some sort of solution. The, the, the bad fruit comes from having wrong lovers instead of receiving the seed of Christ. So watch. When someone falls into idolatry, then essentially what's happening, it, when, when I'm involved... When there's an idol in my life, then that idol, I'm receiving the seed of that, the life of that idol. Do you understand what I mean by that? I receive the seed, and when I receive the seed of the idol, then I bear the fruit of the idol. Of course, that makes sense. If I have another lover, I'd bear that fruit. That's why God says, don't have any other gods before me. He's not petty. He wants you to live the life for which you're created. And what's that life? A life of fruit so that you are, you are made in God's image, begin to look like God. The only way you do that is to receive the life of God 
all the time. And the only way you can do that is to have no other gods before God. That you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where it all begins. And here's the thing. The complaint is not that God's people don't love God. The complaint is that they're married to God, but over time have taken other lovers too. Does that make sense? So that instead of 2 Corinthians 10, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, instead of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, it's, oh yeah, yeah, we love Christ, but it's Christ plus. And what's so deceptive about that is no one is just outright walking away from God. Yeah, I've had it with God, and they're gone. No, 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 no. We love God, and we're drawing our, our fundamental social security from something else. It might be upward mobility. It might be financial security. It might be our reputation in the community. It might be our family. It might be nationalism. It might be individualism. It might be sexual autonomy. Whatever it is, if I'm like this, yeah, I love God, but this, I will not relinquish this. Bam, that's where the bad fruit comes from, right there. So that, I mean, that's the issue. So the, 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 the problem then... <laughs> If we go to the last slide here, I've got to show you this. We gotta, we, all of a sudden, we've got to learn how to name our idols. And if you, if you think about infidelity in a relationship, infidelity often happens when in a relationship, one party becomes afraid of something, of losing something. And then because they're afraid of losing something or they feel like they lost something, then they're open to something else kind of on the side. And it's not, it's, not, they're not, it's not divorce, it's infidelity. It's like, oh yeah, so I'm, I, I'm with my spouse, but I'm with my spouse and I'm with the other who meets a need that I don't think my spouse is meeting. Does this make sense? That's, I mean, affairs happen all the, all the time that way, right? I get everything from my spouse, but sex from that person. Everything from my spouse, but affirmation from that person. Everything from my spouse, but adventure from that person. So let's think about this and try and apply this to our relationship with God because here's, here's what happens. Um, Psalm 73 is where the psalmist makes this profound statement. Who do I have in heaven but you, and having you, I desire what? Nothing else on earth. Wouldn't that be beautiful? I could say that all my contentment is found in Christ alone. Wouldn't that be amazing? But here's what happens sometimes. Certain fears of the life of faith give birth to idols. Fear of boredom, for example, big time in my, in my community, gives birth to the idol of you know, adventure, and people are like this. I'm going I'm, to travel, I'm going to see the world, I'm going to do stuff, and people are just filling their calendars and accumulating experiences like they're these badges that you guys are collecting here. Like, we're just, they're just accumulating them, but the, not to any end. It's idolatry. It's the idol of adventure. People who are afraid of poverty often uh, succumb to the idol of work. People who are afraid of pain succumb to all kinds of idols of self-medication. Alcohol, drugs, food, sex, entertainment. People who are afraid of failure, they're like this, I will succeed at any cost. And then they lose their integrity on the altar of the idol of success. And then they no longer look like Jesus. And they may succeed... But if they succeed at any price, a great deal is lost. One of the college students said, yeah, my dad gave me a trip to Europe when I graduated from high school. 
BMW when I graduated from college. And she said I'd give them both back if he'd spend 10 minutes with me. But he doesn't know me at all. Because all he loves is his work. Does he go to church? Totally. Do you see? That's idolatry. And that's the fruit of idolatry. Fear of rejection means that I uh, make an idol out of pleasing other people. Deadly for any of us in the room. Because now we're not serving out of wholeness, we're serving out of emptiness. Fear of loneliness, our family can become our idol, our kids can become our idol, our friends can become our idol, our social life can become our idol. Sexual weirdness can become an idol under the rubric of fear of loneliness. And here's the thing. Do I love God? Absolutely. Am I involved in Christian stuff? Sure, yes. Do I read my Bible? Yes. And because I'm afraid of that thing, boredom or poverty or failure or whatever, because of that, this is also my life. And I'm here to tell you tonight, no. <laughs> because if that's also your life, you cannot bear the fruit that God has made you to bear. You can't. The only way is to abide. And the only way to abide is to say goodbye to all the other lovers. Monogamy is dead? Are you kidding me? That's the word of the day. And when people look at the church, I wonder, do they see in us devoted love to the one we claim to serve? Because the premise of Ezekiel 16 is if they saw that devoted love, then what would they see? They would see in us generosity and compassion and mercy and justice and crossing social divides and turning the other cheek and loving our enemies. And they don't see it. And the reason they don't see it isn't because we need to then turn around and prescribe programs to do those things. That's engineering. No, no. Those things will happen when we have no other lovers. We just got to return to Christ. That's all. Um, most of you in the room have seen the movie probably, Forrest Gump. Have you seen the movie Forrest Gump? You know it? It's a, it's a crazy movie. But the, the, that's this story. That's this story. Um, who hasn't seen the movie? Everyone has seen it. Okay. So I won't spoil anybody then by telling you the story. But if you know it, it's a beautiful, you know, Tom Hanks, and when he was little, or the, his actor was little, he's alone on the bus, and this girl has a seat, and he sits with her. He falls in love with her. They grow up, and he is dead out in love with Jenny. He just is in love with Jenny. And as Jenny gets older and uh, becomes mature, she becomes, when you read Ezekiel 16, you'll know it. She's Ezekiel 16, man. She's on, she's chasing lovers. That's what's exactly what she's doing. And so for, she's chasing lovers, and what is Forrest doing? Forrest is Hosea. Forrest is, go, he's going out after. She's in a strip club one time, and he goes and he pulls, he yanks her off stage. And wh remember what she says? Forrest, you gotta stop saving me. Have you ever said that? And then, and then uh, there's a guy's beating up. He's beating her up. And he takes the guy out. And he thinks that'll win her love. And then she turns around and gets on the bus with that guy. And says to him, I don't want to see you again. Quit trying to save me. And she's gone. And then he's gone. And then it's another lover. And another lover. And then it's her... Uh, on the 14th floor of some apartment, stoned out, committing, ready to commit suicide. 
And then she's pregnant by God only knows who. <laughs> and then, um, by then, Forrest has moved home and she walks up the driveway one day. And she who has slept with every conceivable man on every conceivable situation, the, what does she say to Forrest? She says, hey, will you marry me? She says to him, what would you say? I'll tell you what he, remember what he says? Of course I will, Jenny. I've always loved you. Wow. I was preparing this sermon and I was writing the narrative of the Forrest Gump story and listening to Pandora at the same time, which plays kind of random music. And Mark Cohen's song comes up entitled True Companion, as I'm thinking about Forrest Gump. And in this beautiful song, Mark Cohen says this to his bride, don't you dare and try and walk away. I've got my heart set on our wedding day. I see this vision of a girl in white. <laughs> I've made it my decision. It's you, all right. You will be my true companion. Hey, can I just tell you this evening? God's already said that to you. Every one of us in the room. I don't care how many people we've been with, how often we've failed, how many idols are in our back pocket. God has said to you, hey, I'm waiting, man. All I want is you. I have this vision of a woman dressed in white. I've made my decision. It's you. I've purified you. I've blessed you. I've loved you. Just return to me. How do you do that? All I got to do is name your idols and say, you know what? I'm done with an extra lover. I'm just done with that. So that's why you got an index card coming in this evening. We have a response this evening. The band's going to come up here. We're going we're to give you a chance to name what is it in your life other than Jesus that has captured your affections or is at risk of capturing your affections. What is it? It could be technology. It could be upward mobility. It could be your 401k. It could be your hidden sin that nobody knows about. It could be, it could be your family. It could be your reputation in the community. It could be your fear of being found out. I don't know what it is, but all God is saying to you is, I can't turn toward my calling until I turn away from my idols, and that's tonight. Turn away. So we're going to give you a chance to, to, to name these idols. I'll tell you, in my own, we did, a, we did this in our church a few weeks ago. Almost everybody came up front and named something. I did. And I named, you know what, God? Would you free me from my addiction to technology and social media? That was my, I named it. I named it. And I put a little card and I put it down there. And then I went back to my apartment and my computer and iPad had been stolen exactly while I was writing that card. <laughs> But uh, here's why I share that. Here's why I share that. You know what? Thanks be to God, right? New day, new freedom. Name it. Jesus, uh, I pray that we have the guts to respond this evening and name what you've laid on our heart. We want to be free. So come, Holy Spirit, free us. Come, Holy Spirit, heal us. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts about anything that stands between us and you that we might be free. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. My hope is that after you name this, it, it's always powerful. Second Corinthians 4 says that uh, it's good when you're renouncing something to renounce it publicly. That's the word renounce, it's public. So just 
bring it up here. Don't put your name on it, but bring it up here. And if you don't have a little index card, there's some up here already, and you can come. Let's respond this evening to what God has spoken to our hearts. Let's worship. Please join me as we pray together. Father, we'd like to thank you so much that uh, as you invite us into this relationship of intimacy, you are incredibly patient with us. I want to just thank you for that. Just, I'll just say thank you. Thank you that we turn, we wander, we come home. We turn, we wander, we come home. We'd love to stay home, but we wander. Thank you. It's your faithfulness, Father, that sustains us. So would you give each one of us in the room the, the, the grace and courage to return again and again and again and again in order that out of your faithful love, Father, we might be shaped by your seed in us to give birth to hope and generosity and light and freedom in a world desperately in need of what you desire to give through us. We give ourselves to you this evening, Father, holy. Use us, spirit, soul, and body. We'll thank you for the adventure that awaits. Praying in the name of Christ. Thank you.